This is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about people from all walks of life. Our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, brings us the story of a professional prankster whose favorite target was the national news media. Today's liberated woman can be summed up or epitomized as a braless vegetarian with hairy legs and armpits. <laughs> and that's the one and only Alan Abel, prankster, hoaxer, hacker, and proud purveyor of fake news. He was responsible for duping the media into fabricated press conferences, faking his own death, and starting media campaigns for imaginary organizations like CINA, the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals. <laughs> we'll get to that later, but first, you really got to hear this guy in action. Posing as a man named Jim Rogers, media hoaxer Alan Abel founded a fake organization called Citizens Against Breastfeeding that sought to abolish this supposed act of immorality. He claimed that breastfeeding would lead to drug use later in life. Here he is on live television, arguing on behalf of a totally made-up topic. Should women be allowed to breastfeed in public? One of our guests tonight says absolutely not. Jim Rogers is the East Coast spokesman for Citizens Against Breastfeeding. And Leslie Burby is the vice president of ProMom. So Jim, let's start with you. What's wrong with breastfeeding in the open? Is it too sexy? Our position is, after 22,000 respondents have been interviewed using primarily the Minnesota Monophasic Personality Profile, many youngsters grow up to become, shall we say, uh, antisocial because of the long breastfeeding period when they are addicted to the mother's breast and they have this oral gratification need that manifests itself into smoking, drinking, and in one instance, Monica Lewinsky, who was breastfed until she was four years old. Leslie, do you have uh, any reaction to what Jim is saying? Well, with due respect, um, had I known that Jim was going to be on the show, I don't know that I would have agreed to appear. And here's another example of the kind of shenanigans that Alan Abel could execute. He managed to gather all of the news people in New York City to a fake press conference about a fictitious lottery winner. They threw dollar bills out of a hotel window, served champagne, and even hired an actress to play the part of the supposed $35 million prize winner. Every TV news station and newspaper in the city showed up and covered the faux news in full detail. Her name is Charlie Taylor, and tonight the 30-year-old cosmetologist is the single winner of the $35 million lottery jackpot. Lucky Charlie showed News 4's Howard Thompson a photocopy of that winning ticket. 30-year-old Charlie Taylor has probably given her last manicure and facial. The Dobbs Ferry cosmetologist is the lucky winner of last night's $35 million lottery. Still giddy, the reality of her new life has not yet set in. <laughs> I flipped. I freaked. It's great. Yeah. It's great. Was there any particular method that you chose in, in picking those particular numbers? No, I... I, <laughs> I it's a funny thing, I had a dream. You had a dream about the numbers? Yeah, yeah, I had a dream. So that's what made me pick the numbers. The news media didn't even catch on to the fact that the entire event was a ruse until days later, forcing reporters all over the country to make retractions on the air. The event even made it as far as the desk of Tom Brokaw. Everyone loves a winner, of course. By now, lotteries are old news in this country, but big winners, well, they still attract a lot of attention. And when the news got out that a New York woman had won a fortune in the state lottery, reporters were all over the story. And what a story it was. 
1987, Alan Abel created a fake Iranian arms merchant who supposedly made $6 million in a commission on the sale of U.S. arms to Iran. He then arranged the press conference that was attended by all of the major media. The story was never questioned, and it wound up on the national news. And in the rush of events in the Iran scandal, a strange story in New York today. I received $6 million for my participation in uh, this affair. Mehdi Baramani. He says he's an Iranian who made $6 million on the sale of U.S. arms to Iran, and he wants now to give it back. So far, we've only heard three of Alan Abel's elaborate media hoaxes. There are many others to get to, and some that we just can't because we don't have enough time. It's a testament to just how many hoaxes he pulled off over the years. He is relentless. The amount of time, energy, and dedication that it takes to pull off just one of these stunts is remarkable. It's one thing to book a fake interview on the news. Just about anybody could do it. It takes a completely different breed of animal altogether to book the interview, show up in person, look down the barrel of a TV camera, and say that you think that the mother-child bond during breastfeeding is somehow an immoral act. This guy is on a whole nother level. But why does he do it? His years of tireless dedication to his craft of tomfoolery certainly hasn't made him rich or famous. Why would he go through such lengths just to get one over on the media? While literally marching to the beat of his own drum on a street corner, Alan Abel himself tells us why he does what he does. I like to think of my hoaxes as having a message. And I also feel kind of comfortable with the idea that it's an opportunity for me to perform. I'm a performer, I'm a writer, I direct, I do a lot of things, but the opportunities to perform are limited. The talk shows, the radio, television, newspaper interviews, it's a conduit to my audience, the public. Here's another one of the many media stunts that got Alan national news attention. He conned the national media into believing a story about a kid selling off body parts to pay off his student debts. It is a decision most of us probably could not even imagine, selling a lung or a kidney for money to live. A man so desperate, so in need of money, that he's putting his body parts up for sale. He says he's a college graduate who's been out of work over a year, is 15 grand in debt, and is about to be kicked out of his apartment. I was just going over trying to figure out what do I have of value. I don't have a car. And out of all the things I own, this is pretty much the most valuable thing I have. And you think your reasoning is that you own these organs and therefore you should be allowed to sell them? Well, I think so. Tom won't give out his last name or any other information because he says what he's doing is illegal. Well, that's what I've been told, but I might be able to work around it by doing it as a non-returnable loan. And again, days later, journalists all over the country began to realize that they'd been had. That 28-year-old who offered to sell a kidney or lung for $25,000 had no intention of parting with either. It turns out he was an actor just playing a part. A veteran media hoaxer, Alan Abel, has owned up to orchestrating the scam. And that's just the tip of the iceberg in the prankster story of Alan Abel. When we come back, some of his best hoaxes ever perpetuated on live TV. Don't go anywhere. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of professional prankster Alan Abel. Let's get back to Jesse. Newspaper columnist Phil Reisman remembers his early days in journalism and his dealings with Alan Abel. One day, he took the bait by accident after finding a sensational advertisement in the back of a newspaper. Alan Abel was my first real lesson in journalism. I can tell you that. I was in in desperate uh, need and want of a byline. I wanted to get a story in this paper. And I remember, I don't know how how I uh, actually found out about this. I might have been just perusing the white pages of the Manhattan phone book. Just by accident, I found an entry called Omar's School for Beggars. Now I have with me this evening Mr. Omar. Omar is the founder and owner of Omar's School for Begging, which is an institution that teaches the fine art of creative panhandling which I thought, this is unbelievable. And this is like in the 70s when people were really out of work and it was like, you know, the city was, uh, New York City was in a drop-dead mode from Gerald Ford, you know. Um, there are homeless people everywhere. So I thought, well, this, this is really amazing and, and probably fits into what's going on right now in the world. But there's no help for people in this position. There's a broad spectrum of America that is faced with this problem. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of men who have served loyally for years and years to their companies, been put out on the streets. They're garbage. I bought it hook, line, and sinker, and I wrote the story about this guy who runs his panhandler school. Here is Omar. Welcome. Years went by, and I began to realize that he was pulling this hoax over and over and over again to other people. And I, I started saving clips, and I had built up a file on Abel. I said, this guy, i got to watch for him. It was incredible how he repeated the same hoaxes over and over and over again, even though they would be exposed, and then he would do it again. Perhaps Alan Abel's most famous media hoax over the years was his campaign to put clothes on animals through the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals, or Senna for short. In 1959, Abel wrote a satirical story about this imaginary organization for the Saturday Evening Post, but editors rejected it. So he then transformed his story into a series of press releases that garnered media attention. The group used the language and rhetoric of moralists for the aim of clothing naked animals, including pets, barnyard animals, and large wildlife. Slogans such as decency today means morality tomorrow and a nude horse is a rude horse were offered. Abel persuaded the actor Buck Henry to play the group president, G. Clifford Prout. Abel played the group vice president. The Society to Clothe All Naked Animals for the Sake of Decency, or CINA, S-I-N-A. CINA received so much press. It was much ado about nothing in my own mind. But it, it's kind of like, uh, maybe this is not a good analogy, but it's kind of like someone who drops a match and suddenly you have a, a, a forest fire. A flood tide of filth is engulfing our country in the form of newsstand obscenity. It was a, a commentary on censorship. If we're going to censor books in the library that might be, seem salacious, then uh, why don't we uh, censor those animals who are out there being naked? And that's what allegorical satire is all about. But it was very well done, too well done, because it obscured that message. I don't think anybody got it. Promoting Cinna gave me the understanding that with very little funds and uh, very few props with a straight face you can convince America and the media that you have this 
crazy movement. Apparently, a lot of people failed to realize that this was all just a bunch of nonsense. Some subscribed to the newsletter, opening local chapters all over the country of moral activists who thought it was a good idea to put pants on a horse. <laughs> Not everyone caught on to the joke. I like to think that poking fun uh, at something is really just a cover. It's just the, the skin, uh, the surface. Underneath that surface or skin is a message, a moral message. In the case of Cinna, right away it's contradictory because we're for it in the title, and yet I was against it. So that's a clue that there must be something wrong here, that it could be a joke. Another one of Alan's bizarre pranks on national TV was when he paid a group of actors to attend a taping of the Phil Donahue show back in the 1980s and pretend to faint. It was a great sight that night on the news because the headlines in the newspapers were Audience Flees Donahue Show. It was live television with a fastly fading studio audience for the Phil Donahue Show today. Combination of the lights, the possible anxiety of uh, the t live television, and the heat uh, caused one woman to faint. And then four others fainted. People started to figure out who Alan Abel was and some weren't too happy about his trickery. Messages for whoever is running this organization. Your organization is considered born on the shores of ignorance, and your group is fed by the spoon of stupidity. You guys are the biggest bunch of sick morons I have ever met in my life. Um, I think all of you need long psychotherapy. Bye. Some people were sick of it, and the news media was beginning to get tired of it as well. At that time, in the early 70s, the media was more considerate of practical joking and utilizing the media as a conduit to the public. But as the years went by and the competition got greater, the news got more serious and the pressure was on to come up with hard news factually, quickly, there was no time to fool around or play around. So the breed of reporters who came out of the 80s and 90s were guys and gals who just uh, didn't want to have fun. No way. With the people in the media getting wiser, a guy like Alan Abel just doesn't stop. He went on to act in daytime TV shows like Mari Pulvich and Jerry Springer at the time. In the documentary about his life called Cain Raising Abel, Alan's own daughter narrates what life was like living with a guy like this for a father. Can you imagine being this trickster's kid? You are trying to tell me that that child has eaten nothing but nothing, hair? One time he even dragged me along on one of his appearances. He was posing as Dr. Herbert Strauss, a firm believer in the notion that people should consume human hair because it's high in protein. Jennifer, do, would you like a hair sandwich? He tried to get me to eat a hair sandwich on camera, but I refused, even though we had been rehearsing it for weeks, and I knew there was hair on only one side of the bun. It was actually my mom's hair inside the sandwich. What does it hair? taste like? Uh, it just, just it tastes uh, a bit like uh, a hamburger. Even though my dad enjoyed doing these types of TV appearances, he wanted to keep pulling off his own pranks. This is a hair pie made from a dark-haired woman. But it wasn't always about national attention and elaborate hoaxes that kept Alan's wheels turning. There's a video of him online on local cable access TV for over 20 minutes going on about the history of the world as told through the snare drum. Here's a small piece of that speech. My name is Alan Abel, and I would like to tell you about the relationship of the snare drum and its effect on civilization today. Many people have asked, where did this drum really come from? Well, last year, an archaeologist friend of mine went to Egypt, and after poking among the pyramids for over six months, he discovered that this particular drum actually came from a music store 
in Greenwich, Connecticut. However, the drum does date back to the year 4000 BM, which of course is before Madonna. Now in that year, we had cavemen who used to use the drum as a means of communication. They would first of all cut down a tree, hollow out the log, cover the end of that log with the skins of neighboring tribes, and then beat on the end of that log with an arm or a leg from one of the tribes. And of course, we developed our first log rhythms that way. Now, we would have one tribe talk to another tribe by using a drum book. They actually had a drum book. For example, let's have a woman in a tribe over here who wants to talk to a lady in a tribe three miles away. She would look up her number in the drum book and it might be three, two, one, roll twice. So she would send the number. Her friend would hear the, the number on the drum and know that she was wanted on the drum. On January 2nd of 1980, both the New York Times and the New York Daily News reported the death of the famous media hoaxer, Alan Abel. The Times provided a flattering account of his career. Unfortunately for these papers, there was a small problem. Abel was very much alive. The newspapers learned this when Abel held a press conference the next day in which he revealed that the news of his death was a hoax engineered by himself and a team of 12 accomplices, some of whom had sent the false story to the media while others had acted to confirm it. Abel explained that he perpetuated the hoax for publicity specifically to publicize the fact that he was a professional hoaxer. And that, my friends, is the one and only Alan Abel. Marching to the beat of his own drum, He's dedicated his entire life to pranks, hoaxes, and fake news, doing it better than perhaps anyone else, just for kicks. I can't think of a better way to spend a life well-lived. Can you? VD has reached epidemic proportions. Ten cents is a small price indeed to pay for this sanitary sanctuary, a private John in public. This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the theme music from The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, by the way, written by the great, great songwriter Paul Anka. And today, we're going to dig into the life of Johnny Carson, who was born on this day in history in 1925. About the closest Johnny Carson came to explaining himself to his audience was a vintage Tonight Show appearance by celebrity interviewer Rona Barrett. Up until then, America knew little about the man but for his marriage problems. Carson rose up the entertainment ranks before the days of TMZ and tell-all confessionals, when stars then understood that the less we knew about them, the better. Barrett took the opportunity to do what she did best, which was ask probing personal questions of stars. Carson, always a perfect host with a deep sense for what drew viewers in, obliged. He was now a guest on his own show, 
And Barrett started things off by asking Carson where he grew up. I grew up in the Midwest, kind of a normal, I guess what you'd call normal upbringing, you know, the part of the country. Uh, my, my folks were supportive in what I wanted to do. Did you always know what you wanted to do? Oh, yeah. From oh, the very yeah. beginning? Oh, sure. How old? Well, I must have been about 12, 13 years old. I knew I wanted to, to entertain. You liked the attention? Oh, sure. But why? Why you? I mean, why at age 12 or 13? Because I was in a play or something, and I got up, and I did something, and people laughed. And all of a sudden, you say, hey... That sounds pretty good. So it makes you the center of attention. Yes, but why did you want the attention? Hmm? Why did you want the attention? Why did I want the attention? Because I was shy. Ah. Because I was shy. Well, that sounds like a, a ambivalence, right? No. On not stage, at all. you see, when you're on stage in front of an audience, you are kind of in control. When you're off of the stage or in a situation where there are a lot of people, you're not in control. And I felt awkward. So I went into show business thinking it would give me a little more, I could overcome that shyness. Where do you think the shyness emanated from? I, I bought it in Chicago. <laughs> and what a revealing moment. Carson talking about control, talking about his youth, talking about his shyness. And suddenly he felt like he'd revealed too much. And he used humor, the very humor he used every night to bring us together. He used it here to take control back of that interview. And he used it often in his life, we learn, as a defensive weapon, as an escape. Indeed, Carson spent much of his life escaping from life, and we learned that from a recent biography, and no one, even Carson, knew why. But what made him great? What made him the kind of late-night host without peer? Two things came to mind, his timing and his generosity. Here's Arsenio Hall. He had the perfect barometer in his head of when to go and when to stay out. He could save you if the show needed it, or he could let you do your thing. His ego could let you do your thing. That timing was a product of his love of magic. A magician friend of mine explained who was a member of the world-famous Magic Castle in Los Angeles. Carson was a member there, too. It's a very private club. And this is what my friend told me. Quote, Johnny loved magic and he used lessons learned from the craft as a host. It was a part of his life from early on, and it played a real role in his success. And it turns out John William Carson's love of magic started early. He was born in Iowa, but when he was eight, his family moved to Norfolk, Nebraska, where Father Kit Carson worked for the local power company. Johnny had a younger brother, Dick, and an older sister, Catherine, was the favorite of the mother, Ruth Carson. In the later years, when he revisited his childhood home, Carson explained to the boy who was the current resident there the lengths to which he would go to get his mother's attention. I used to sit with a deck of cards. I did magic when I was about your age. Every place in the house, I had a deck of cards in my hand. Drive my mother crazy. My mother would be upstairs in the bathroom. Now, you may not believe this, but I would go into the bathroom and say, take a card. <laughs> and we would believe it, actually. You just told us. As Johnny got older... He learned the craft of illusion, of becoming bigger, of projecting and misdirecting and giving himself a greater sense of something that maybe wasn't entirely always him. And there was a big reason why. I took up magic uh, when I was young yes. because I was somewhat shy and within myself. And I thought, well, that would be a good way to go to parties. Yeah. You know, I read those ads, yeah. you know, be and the life girls. of the party and get girls. Yeah. Mainly I got it, uh, did it to get girls. <laughs> Neither one worked well. But lots of people do that. They'd like to get up and perform. You can be the center of attention without being yourself as such. 
And if magic helped inform Carson's timing and his career, so too did his generosity. Carson never cared if his guests scored big and bested him. Here's Bill Zima. Here's Bill Zim. Here's Bill Zimi, Carson's biographer. In the end, he put out a better product across the board, and it was because he was smart enough to know how to give room to funny people or to engaging people and, and let them shine. And many of those guests included up-and-coming comedians whom Carson always rooted for. Indeed, his show launched many of the greatest comedy careers of the past half century. Gary Shandling, Ellen DeGeneres, David Letterman, Jim Carrey, Steve Wright, and so many, many more. Getting an offer to sit on the couch after your performance instantly changed to stand-up's lives, said Carl Reiner. It was like the Pope blessing you. Overnight, comedians would go from feature act to taking meetings with the biggest talent agents in the business. At the age of 27, Jerry Seinfeld made his debut on Carson's show in 1981. He said this, I don't wonder what it's like to be an Olympic athlete and spend years on something that goes by in five minutes because I know. If you're on The Tonight Show and Johnny likes you, you're in show business. And if he doesn't, you're not. Things worked out for Seinfeld, who would appear many, many more times with Carson. Here's Joan Rivers talking about Carson's generosity to comedians. He knew where you were going. He knew when to come in and say, how fat was she? He knew when not to say it. You knew you were bringing your little gift to him of a joke. And you knew he was going to open it and love it. <laughs> and what a wonderful thing to say. You knew you were bringing your little gift to him of a joke, and you knew he was going to open it and love it. Here's a grateful and emotional Drew Carey describing his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Curtain opens. You know, Johnny Carson introduces me, and it's just like I dreamed it. It's just exactly like I dreamed it. I go on a stage. I hit the mark. Then he says my favorite thing on the menu. It's a hot dog with cheese and bacon. Yeah, not enough nitrates in a hot dog. I gotta put some bacon on top of there. And for an extra dollar, they'll put chili on top of the whole thing. For people who don't care anymore. I remember seeing Johnny Carson holding onto the desk. He's holding onto the desk because he's laughing so hard so he doesn't fall off the chair. Because he's like, he's like convulsing. That's the kind of food just marches right down your throat, you know? <laughs> Follow me, boys. We're going to the heart. <laughs> he goes like this. And I go, who, me? And he goes, yeah, you. And I, I'm like, oh, well, nobody gets called over for the Tonight Show. That's a big thing. It's like a religious experience. And then after that, my career was made. You're funny as hell. Thanks, I appreciate that. You Thank really you. are. Thanks. Uh, oh, you too. Yeah. So. <laughs> and by the way, Carson said to him, you're funny as hell. And the kid says, you too. And Carson laughs at that. He doesn't get put off by it. No ego there. When so many of us think of Carson, memories of our family also pop into our heads. Here's Conan O'Brien talking about just that. My dad would always say the same thing. Let's just watch the monologue. We'll watch a little bit of the monologue. I'm laughing and my father's laughing. And how, much, how often can you watch something with your father, you know? Okay? He crossed generations, I think. He crossed generations in several, actually. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Johnny Carson himself. We're going to hear from Jerry Seinfeld, Jay Leno. We're going to hear one of the greatest moments in Carson history. And that's Jimmy Stewart dropping by as he did sometimes, not to plug a movie, 
but to just share some time. And my goodness, that doesn't happen often enough. And of course, we'll hear Bette Midler's beautiful performance in the finale, the very final Johnny Carson show. And again, celebrating the life of Johnny Carson here on Our American Stories. As always, are this days in history is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. If you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you at hillsdale.edu. This is Our American Stories, and we continue the celebration of the life of Johnny Carson. And we talked about his generosity. We talked about his timing, which he got, many people think, from magic and also from watching all the great vaudevillians and guys like Jack Benny ply their craft. But one thing that helped Carson was his fierce discipline on the politics front. Unlike many late-night hosts today who are overtly partisan and overwhelmingly favor Democrat politicians... Carson had too much respect for his audience and his show to choose sides. Here's Johnny Carson explaining that to Barbara Walters in 1984. I think one of the dangers, if you are a comedian, which basically I am, if you start to take yourself too seriously Mm. um, and start to comment on social issues, your sense of humor suffers somewhere. And we've had some criticism on the show. Some critics over the years says, well, the show has no great sociological value. It's not controversial. It's not deep. The Tonight Show basically is um, to amuse people, to make them laugh. And here's Jay Leno talking about the very same thing. You never knew Johnny's politics. Johnny would come out and equally make fun of everybody and never question anybody's patriotism. It was always about what they said or did. President Ford is considering an income tax cut for people in lower tax brackets. That's, that's the good news. Now, the bad news is he still hasn't figured out how they can get an income. <laughs> Finally, some good political news. Bill Clinton has laryngitis lost his voice. And I do have a late breaking news bulletin for you. World War III was just declared. No, no, I'm... I'm just kidding, of course, not really. I just wanted to get Reagan out of bed to watch the monologue. <laughs> and that was Carson's talent, equal opportunity offender. And it was just light jabs. He was never, ever going for the jugular. Carson had one other talent. The audience felt like they knew him, even if those around him, including his wives and ex-wives, didn't. He did that by mastering the art of self-deprecation allowing his bandmates and Ed McMahon, Doc Severinsen, and that entire crew were indeed part of a merry team and band. Well, they were allowed to tease him, even about his marriage problems. In his New Yorker profile of Johnny Carson, the great critic Kenneth Tyne noted that Carson mastered, quote, the art of the expected. 
Every night for what seemed like a lifetime, the show's band leader would start that great late night theme song, and near the end, Ed McMahon would joyfully croon, Here's Johnny. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's Johnny. And for an hour or so, or until we all fell asleep, the world was a better place. You know, one of the best examples that we could find when trying to find just a segment that reflected all that was great about the Carson show, his timing, his generosity, and just his love of his guests and giving them the stage and letting them shine. Well, Jimmy Stewart came by one day, and a lot of guys just popped by. Sinatra would pop by, and they weren't plugging anything. They were just on to have fun, and my goodness, what we would all pay to have people just go on the air and have fun together and entertain each other and not be selling selling us every second. Well, Jimmy Stewart came by. He had something to share with Carson about his dog. Carson gave him the set. And by the way, listen to the repartee back and forth as Carson starts to tease Stewart about the length of time it's taking him to get the letter out of his pocket to just start reading it. Let's take a listen. I, I just thought I'd uh, write, write a poem. Do you want me to hear Please, oh, yes. Do you want to hear it? Now, this... Uh, uh, well... We could always start the... They could always start the wedding late, I guess. <laughs> now, now the, the title of it is, is Bo. That's, that's the name of the dog. He never came to me when I would call unless I had a tennis ball, or he felt like it. But, but mo- mostly, he didn't come at all. When he was young, he never learned to heal or sit or stay. He did things his way. Discipline was not his bag, but when you were with him, things sure didn't drag. <laughs> he'd dig up a rose bush just to spite me, and when I'd grab him, he'd turn and bite me. <laughs> he bit lots of folks from day to day. The, the, the delivery boy was his favorite prey. The gas man wouldn't read our meter. He said we owned a real man-eater. He set the house on fire, but the story's long to tell. Suffice to say that he survived and the house survived as well. And on evening walks, and Gloria took him, he was always first out the door. The old one and I brought up the rear because our bones were sore. And He'd charge up the street with Mom hanging on. What a beautiful pair they were. And if it was still light and the tourists were out, they created a bit of a stir. But every once in a while, he'd stop in his tracks and with a frown on his face, look around. It was just to make sure that the old one was there to follow him where he was bound. We're, we're early to betters in our house. I guess I'm the first to retire. And as I'd leave the room, he'd look at me and get up from his place by the fire. He knew where the tennis balls were upstairs, and I'd give him one for a while, and he'd push it under the bed with his nose, and I'd dig it out with a smile. But before very long, he'd tire of the ball, and he'd be asleep in his corner in no time at all. And there were nights when I'd feel him climb upon our bed and lie between us, 
and I'd pat his head. And there were nights when I'd feel this stare and I'd wake up and he'd be sitting there and I'd reach out to stroke his hair and sometimes I'd feel him sigh and I think I know the reason why. He'd, he'd wake up at night and he would have this fear of the dark, of life, of lots of things and he'd be glad to have me near and now he's dead and there are nights when I think I feel him climb upon her bed and lie between us and I pat his head and there are nights when I when I think I feel that stare and I reach out my hand to stroke his hair and he's not there Oh, how I wish that wasn't so. I'll always love a dog named Bo. And what a moment. And Carson just sitting there doing what a great host does. He's holding back the tears. He gave the stage to Stuart. Stuart took it and surprised everybody with that beautiful, beautiful, beautiful poem about his dog. When Johnny Carson announced his retirement, there was a lot of speculation about the person that would replace him. Here's Seinfeld talking about just that. You know, for my entire career, I've heard comedians in bars debate over who do you think is going to get The Tonight Show after Johnny leaves. What nobody realized is that when you left, you were going to pack it up and take it with you, which is what he did, because that show never existed again. There never was a Tonight Show. It was Carson. America never tired of Johnny Carson. He walked away from the show in 1992 after 30 years at the top of the late night ratings. Here were Johnny Carson's final words in the finality in 1992. And so it has come to this. I... uh... I'm one of the lucky people in the world. I found something I always wanted to do, and I have enjoyed every single minute of it. I want to thank the gentleman who shared this stage with me for 30 years, Mr. Ed McMahon, <laughs> Mr. Doc Severinsen, and you people watching, I can only tell you that it has been an honor and a privilege to come into your homes all these years and entertain you. And I hope when I find something that I want to do and I think you will like and come back that you'll be as gracious inviting me into your home as you have been. I bid you a very heartfelt good night. Except for a few fleeting TV appearances after he retired, Carson never did come back. And so we celebrate the life of Johnny Carson. All of it, we've heard from so many talented people. But we're saving the best for last. Bette Midler was the final performer on the final show of the Johnny Carson show. And she sang a beautiful song, sitting on the top of her baby grand piano, looking across the stage at Johnny Carson. And we all just watched. No band, no nothing. Just bet and some keyboards.
that you showed Make it one for my baby And one more for the road That long, long This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our One Mom versus the Machine series. And we previously brought you Kathy Hamilton's story of taking down the corrupt board and president of her local community college, and also Marva Collins' story of becoming disillusioned teaching in Chicago's public schools that were failing its students and deciding to take all of her life savings, $5,000, to start her very own school. And now, today's feature, which comes to us from our field correspondent, Alex Cortez. This Ohio mom is a Spanish teacher at a public high school. Someone put a nail in my tire three times at school. Okay, now, I wasn't where I could prove it. I didn't have film. But the first time a nail was in my tire at school, I didn't even think about it. The second time, within that same fall, it happened. I thought, okay... Am I running over something? The third time it happened at school, I went out and my tire was flat. I thought, okay, what, what's going on here? Her name is Jade Hamilton, and she didn't always want to become a teacher. I was very fortunate, um, and it was by serendipity I met A woman here at Marietta College, I had moved here from Washington, D.C. with my husband, and I just had a new baby. And I had previously worked on Capitol Hill and loved it. So I was moving from being a full-time professional to a full-time mom in a small um, town. And I was, I didn't have very many friends, and I, I was struggling to find my identity. And when I met her, she was the new head of the Department of Modern Languages at Marietta College. So what she, after talking to me and finding out that I had traveled, studied abroad, and my dad was in the Foreign Service, and I'd lived in Chile and Argentina, and I'd lived in Brazil and Central America, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, and then in Africa, and then in Spain. Okay, so she said, you, you, can you teach an adjunct class, which is on a per-class basis? I said to her, I, I'm not, I didn't go to school to be a teacher, and she said, you know, Many people who go to school to be a teacher are not good teachers. She said, you have all this life experience. Wouldn't you just try? And try Jade did, teaching in college while she was getting her master's degree in teaching. And Jade has continued to bring all of her amazing experiences right into the classroom. Although it hasn't always exactly been what she was expecting. Many of her students just want to Google the answers, and they don't have a zeal for the actual mastery of the subject. But she tries to break through. I try to do what I call a song and dance. 
I see myself as a link in the chain. I'm the beginning teacher or the, you know, the secondary school teacher, and hopefully they will turn it, they will be turned on and take it in college. So I take my responsibility there. I try to be happy. I try to be in a good mood. I try to not, not entertain my kids because I can be hard on them, but I try to get them interested in, oh, wow, oh, I could do this, or, oh, Mrs. Thompson, and they'll come and say, did you see this soccer player, or did you see this music, this band that came out, and this song? Sadly, Jade would find out that not all of her colleagues had this same enthusiasm for her after she asked what she thought was a very basic question about the union that they belonged to and that did the collective bargaining for their pay packages, which, by the way, she was fine with. I started to wonder, what is my $800, $900 a year going toward? Does it take that much money? Do the math and calculate that times all the people. We have, I think, three um, elementary schools, a middle school, and a high school. That's a lot of money to collective bargain. How, How hard is it? How long does that take? And you do it for about a year. You know, I started asking questions and wondering, And wonder she should. If you're a mom like Jade, trying to make ends meet for your family, you gotta look at every expense, especially one that's eight to nine hundred dollars a year. Jade's calculation is that it should cost about two hundred sixty dollars a year, both for the liability insurance that helps protect teachers in the event of a lawsuit against them, and for the collective bargaining. She knows that she can get private liability insurance for less than two hundred dollars a year. And the nature of collective bargaining is that it isn't an ongoing yearly cost. Usually they bargain your contract and it's good for five years or, you know, it's, it's not every single year they're bargaining. Jade isn't anti-union. In fact, she was a full dues-paying member of the union. But the mom and her kept coming across things. It really upset me when, at a certain point, a teacher showed me where the money goes on the national scale. You know, like, so 177 goes straight to the National Education Association. That's the national one. 177 of my dollars. The local union passes along this amount of Jade's dues to this national arm of the union. Well, okay, you're hearing about what kind of salaries they have. Almost 50 people making over $200,000. Then they may have a convention or an event in in Las Vegas, and they they stay in these hotels. I'm like, wait a minute, okay, where is this coming from? Well, you take Jade's $177 times 124,000 Ohio teachers making the same payment, and you get... $21,948,000 from Ohio to the National Union. And by the way, in case you forgot, Ohio's one of only 50 states. In Jade's statewide union, the Ohio Education Association, the OEA, is living quite differently, too. When you find out all the the list of salaries for the OEA, I I think there are two, two pages, full pages, of salary 
for the Ohio Education Association and probably the lowest paying person makes two or three times what I make as a teacher. So when I started to look at, okay, what's the OEA president make? Near $200,000. Well, in Ohio, a salary of $200,000 is luxury. I mean, you know, you're, you're a doctor, a lawyer, you maybe make that, but not normal people. And when we come back, this not normal mom starts to really dig in. This is Lee Habib, One Mom versus the Machine, Jade Thompson's story here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we return to our One Mom versus the Machine segment, Jade Thompson's story. And when we had left off, she had talked about how the salary she was seeing for the state union just weren't normal. Well, this not-so-normal mom, she was about to really dig in. Like all things in life, from business to government, normal people closer to home are more accountable. And because of this, they also perform better. Why can't it be a professional organization of people that knows our school, that we employ, somebody local? Why does it have to be national? And why does my money have to go to the national and then the OEA? The union would respond that state and national folks have unique expertise that not every local union could provide. They quite simply know better. And and it's an argument that has some merit. But sometimes they act like they know better, too. You start getting, during political cycles, magazines from the OEA. Okay, they have a monthly magazine that comes out. And it is, it's right, they, they just, sorry to say it this way, cram it right down your throat. They tell you who to vote for. Well, I take offense, don't tell me who to vote for. Whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or Green Party, none of us want to be told who to vote for, let alone through these means. Who's paying for this magazine? I am. I'm paying for the propaganda that comes my way, and it's a slick magazine. Okay, so I don't want to pay for that. I don't mind paying for collective bargaining. And then, one day, all these political activities became all too personal. I never really got involved, but I didn't make a stand or do anything, and I didn't like it at all. But then what happened was my husband was a city councilman. He decided to run for state representative. When he ran for state representative, um, what the union started doing was sending all these ads out against my husband that were very mocking and political in nature. And um, they were going to my mom's household. My mom was alive at the time. And, you know, in the return box paid for by the campaign for moderate majority. And then in parentheses, OEA, S-E-I-U. Like, okay, wait, the OEA in Columbus? The union that she was part of was taking her money and using it to oppose and mock 
her very own husband. And of course, without her permission to spend her hard-earned money this way. It was like an epiphany of, are you kidding me? This, that's like a major slap in the face. Jade's husband was running as a Republican, but to her, that should have made no difference at all. Um, I wouldn't want a Democratic friend. I wouldn't want anyone to have to go through what I've had to go through. And um, it's just not right. It's not right for them to use your money, your forced dues, in that manner. If a union opposes a spouse of one of their Democratic members, they're risking doing so on behalf of a minority of their members. Republicans only make up about 25% of union membership. And if a union opposes a Republican member's spouse, they're also risking doing so on behalf of a minority. Less than 45% of union members identify as Democrats. The union is speaking for all in a way that they don't speak for all. Most membership organizations stick to the issues where the vast majority of their members agree for this reason. For the unions, their way of doing business could be untenable for them and exposes them to further diminishing. Their membership has already dropped in half from 20% of American workers to 10% in just over 30 years. And it doesn't help when you don't respond to your members. So I actually called the OEA president. Her name was Patricia Frost. At the time, she, of course, wouldn't take my call. And I tried to complain. I said, you know, really, this is... uh, this is ridiculous. I, I have to be in this union, and, you know, the OEA is doing something. I This is ridiculous. So um, it was a crucible moment for me, though, because before I kind of didn't have a voice. I didn't want to distinguish myself in any uh, pejorative way. So then I started getting, you know, angry. Uh, you won't take my call. I thought, okay, you, you that's fine. That's fine. I'm fighting back now. So... I, I did feel alone for a, a time, and I decided to write a couple letters to the editor, which got picked up by the Columbus Dispatch. Fairly nerve-wracking for me, but I thought to myself, if I'm quiet, all these people speak for me. And um, my husband is a really good man, and he does not deserve this, and this is wrong. I was so worried, oh, I'm going to have repercussions at school. But you know what I thought to myself? If you're my friend and, and you know who we are, then you'll support me. And because her union stopped supporting her, she decided to stop supporting it. I decided then to be a, a fee payer, and I changed my status. So I'm a non, I'm a, I have to pay still to be in the union to have my collective bargaining, but they give you a certain amount back. Ohio is not a right-to-work state. So if your workplace is unionized and you don't want to be a member of a union, you kind of sort of still have to be. As Jade mentioned, your only option is to become what's called a fee payer. 
where you have to pay the union for what they say are the cost to represent you in any potential legal matters and to negotiate your contract on your behalf, even if you don't want them to. But allegedly, you also no longer have to pay for all the other activities of a union, such as their political lobbying and election efforts, and this would be a good thing. But the reality is, well... If you just look at the OEA and NEA portions of a teacher's dues, a fee payer is forced to pay 97.9% of a regular union member's dues, a difference of only 2.1%. So the Ohio Union, in effect, is saying that only 2.1% of their budget goes to non-representation activities. Hmm, think that adds up? Whatever the reality is, this puny refund creates a strong disincentive for a teacher to leave a union, especially when this can be the result. When you start to speak out about it or talk about it, other teachers try to intimidate you. They make you feel like, well, you can't go against the union. You've got to be in the union. Or if you're against the union, you're against public schools, or you're against the teachers. Wait a minute, I'm not. I just, I don't want to be, don't you guys see all this stuff going on? Nobody, there are a lot of people who are like cows to the slaughter. They do not want to know. So that intimidation factor is people are worried that they'll lose their job or they'll have to work with somebody who's very pro-union. And what I realized is if once you start talking about it, people start they identify you and then they freeze you out like they will be walking down the hall in the, in the school and they you say hello to them as a polite normal person with people skills and they act like they didn't hear you i want to be working in a, in a school where i feel like i have colleagues that respect me and we can go to each other and help each other and you know cross curriculum kinds of uh lessons and those kinds of things so uh, you don't. Nobody wants to be in an organization where nobody will talk to you, right? Right. And what a mom this is! Again, don't get on the wrong side of a fighter. This is our American stories, Jay Thompson's story, and this takes courage, folks. I mean, this is the kind of courage that is hard to exhibit, particularly in small towns. And we broadcast from a small town here in Oxford, Mississippi. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this story, Jay Thompson's story, more after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return to the final portion of this incredible One Mom versus the Machine story, Jade Thompson's story. And when we left off, Jade was expressing the pain of her fellow teachers not talking to her in the hallways because she simply decided to leave the union. Despite this, Jade still chose to opt out of the union and talk to her fellow teachers. But becoming a fee payer was easier said than done. When you opt out, you have a very small window every single year that you have to do. You're opting out. You get a packet in the mail from the OEA. And um, of course, it comes at Christmas time when you are so busy. And what people, I didn't even look for that. I didn't even know what that package was. So it's this packet, and on the third or fourth page are the instructions for how to how to opt out and how to be a fee payer. You have to get it postmarked by January 15th, and so you know, you're good to be a fee payer for one year. So you have a very short, small window. A lot of teachers don't even know about it, and they don't make it really easy to figure out how to do it. You have to look for it. So I think on this year, there were instructions on page three, and then there was another, you had to go into like page 15 to, so um, opting out is a chore. The union ought to ask you, it ought to be competitive. It ought to ask you, do you want to be a member? And are we doing a good job? In fact, the state of Wisconsin in 2011 changed their structure so that individuals have the free choice of whether to opt into the union in the first place so that you don't have to opt out. And this really is how every other membership organization in America works. We decide whether to opt in to attend a certain church, the Lions Club, the Chamber of Commerce, or none of them at all. And when you decide not to become a member of these organizations, typically this doesn't happen. Someone put a nail in my tire three times at school. Tragically, the intimidation didn't stop at the grown-up level. My son's math teacher, she, in my son's math class, made a point. And my son was, you know, in high school, he didn't really want to be called out. He didn't want people to know his dad was the representative. And she made several references in class about my husband. Oh, and she said, you know, my son's name, and this is your dad, or whatever. Well, he was completely mortified. The health teacher did that, and so did the math teacher. And um, I had to go to our principal and have a meeting with them and say, you know, you can't do that. You You absolutely cannot call my husband's name in your class in your math class or your health class and um, embarrass my son because he he's not a political figure and he doesn't deserve that. That's crossing a line. If you're a teacher of English, a teacher of math, teacher of Spanish, stick on your subject. Teach your subject as best you can. You shouldn't be up there teaching your politics. So uh, I guess in English you could say, well, you know, you got to write a persuasion paper. But don't you feel intimidated if you know your teacher is supporting the Democrat and you want to support the Republican? Maybe your parents are Republican and 
you know, teachers this year even have gotten in trouble for uh, saying political things after the election. And um, they don't get fired, though. And they don't get, I I just don't want my kids to be subject to that. I just want them to have um, anonymity and fairness. And so that's been, that's been a little bit touchy. I will be glad when my youngest graduates. So we'll see. And through all of this, Jade wasn't going to let the intimidation stop her. This mom sued them. About that time, I reached out to the National Right to Work Foundation. They, they actually came to talk to me in person and asked me if I wanted to be a part of a lawsuit. It was called Thaxton versus the OEA, and I got to meet about 20 other teachers who were also a part of this lawsuit. Well, this is my first time to be with other people who I didn't feel so alone. They knew, they knew that they were finding out the same kinds of things that I was finding out and sort of sticking their necks out. And that was empowering. Their lawsuit challenged the amount that the union was forcibly charging fee payers like them. These teachers believed that the refund amount off of the standard union dues should have been higher. That the union was unconstitutionally charging them for non-representation activities that they can't charge them for, such as public relations, union organizing, and lobbying. These seemingly lowly teachers who took on an all-powerful union in a three-year epic fight turned out to be right. And won. The Thaxton got, uh, I think, as a fee payer before, you got $105 back. Now you get 235 or around there. Um, so it doubled. That was the change that the union agreed to in a settlement. And the settlement talks were something else. It was, um, it was an education in itself watching the OEA lawyers argue. And they wanted us to, um, they actually approached, the OEA lawyers approached our, the any the National Right to Work lawyers and said, oh, just, just let's, let's bargain this deal for a couple of years and, and, you know, we'll see you back in court and you'll get paid again. And they were kind of trying to cut a deal under the, under the table, but none of those teachers were in it for money. They were all in it to have change. And so every single one of us said, we don't want it to just be effective for two years or four years. We want it to be, we're doing this for teachers that can't speak out or won't speak out, people going forward. And so um, we did get it that was 30 years effective. And it was for everyone who wants to be a fee payer, past, present, and future not just for the plaintiffs, as the unions will often try to limit it to. They weren't able to this time. And although Jade has achieved something significant, and more importantly, can sleep easy at night knowing that she followed her conscience, this burden that's been thrust upon her has been a gigantic waste of her time and emotional energy 
at the end of the day, given her true mission in life. I want to teach. I don't want to get involved in this huge ordeal. I just want to teach. And I enjoy my job, and I'm very grateful for my job, and I don't want to make anybody mad. I want to be on a team. Is that too much to ask? Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And great job on that piece, Alex. I just want to teach. And Jade also said, opting out of the union is a chore. I mean, heck, we have to opt in to email, for goodness sake. And last but not least, the bullying point. We hear about it at schools all the time, working on bullying, anti-bullying this, anti-bullying that. But this one teacher went up against her union, and they just bullied her, and bullied her nonstop. God bless Jade Thompson, one mom versus the machine. Don't get in the way of these moms, and don't bully them, because they're coming right back at you. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Jade Thompson's story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show. History, the arts, sports, and of course, your stories as well, stories about love and loss. The stories of hardworking Americans across this country in their voices. And of course, you can send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. We'll edit them down, and we'll play them. We love to hear from you, and we love to hear about you and your lives One of our favorite subjects is leadership, and we talk about it a lot, at least once a week. And some of our favorites, well, Pete Pace's remarkable story, graduates from Annapolis, finds himself in a place called Vietnam. And the question is, how do you lead men who are older than you and have been in the field of combat? And Pete Pace walks some students through that conundrum. Bear Bryant and John Wooden, we did hours on those great leaders in the sports field and many more. And two of our favorites also, Ed Renzi's story. He's a CEO of McDonald's, and he started at the minimum wage there. And Faye Vincent's life and his leadership lessons. He was the commissioner of Major League Baseball and also the president of Columbia Pictures. Two very different worlds. At the top of his game, at the top of his field, in both sports and the arts. And this next segment is on Mike Levin, a friend, a business leader, And just a really, really good guy. And it's hard for many men to say that about other men. Because so many guys, well, we're a mixed bag. But Mike, a mensch, uh, if he doesn't mind me saying so. And my goodness, a lifetime of leadership in the hotel business. From growing and expanding the Holiday Inn Express brand. To, in the last episode of his career, growing and expanding the remarkable Las Vegas Sands brand. And that was in the 
years, somewhere around the mid-2000s. Mike now is the chairman and chief executive officer of the Georgia Aquarium. And my goodness, if you haven't been, it's one of the greatest aquariums in the world, maybe the greatest aquarium in the world, and built in large measure by the generosity of Bernie Marcus, the co-founder of Home Depot. And we talked to Mike uh, on and off about him performing a talk he's given now and then to young people and to old people and in between about life leadership lessons he learned. And here's Mike performing 54 Things I Learned in 54 Years. As I reach this much maligned place in the world called retirement, it's not only with satisfaction and awe, but with trepidation. Even today, I wondered for these past months what I might say in these few minutes allotted to summarize a body of work which, in fact, represented the great majority of my life. Unable to summarize quickly, I thought I would simply speak in short sentences what I've learned since the first day on February 1, 1961. When I took a decamp bus from North Arlington, New Jersey to the Port Authority bus terminal in Manhattan, to the shuttle to Grand Central Station, and walked through a long tunnel to my seat in the sales department of the Hotel Roosevelt. So here are 54 things I learned, one for every year, not in chronological order. I learned that brains are no substitute for hard work, that every single employee is a human being that deserves dignity and care, that the customer has a voice and should be listened to, that the customer is not always right, but is always the customer, that the boss is not always right, but is always the boss, that to ask why rather than to accept an order is okay, that you make mistakes and that is the best way to learn, that to listen is better than talking, that people don't always do the right thing, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't, that honesty and truth sometimes get you into trouble, but it's okay because in the end you will win. To tell the truth because you never have to remember what you said. That every person, no matter their color, gender, sexual orientation, or religion, has equal opportunity and should be provided that, but should work to maintain those rights. That people everywhere care about their family, their loved ones, and their country. That international business is not a mystery. That the more diverse you make yourself, the easier it is to understand others. That tolerance and patience gains respect from others and self-respect as well. That people need explanations of why they should do things you want them to do. That participation in industry activities is not only a giving experience to others, but is a learning experience for yourself. That this is a human industry where you can touch thousands and build friendships. That competitors are not enemies. That the balance sheet of life is more important than the balance sheet of the business. That Wall Street is just a street, not a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. That as a young person, you learn a lot, but even as an old person, you still much learn. That when you have to fire someone, never take their dignity away. 
that if you have a family, don't miss your kids' events, they grow up too fast. That you can balance your life and be successful. That no matter how much money you make, someone always makes more. That no matter how much money you make, someone always makes less. That charity and giving are more rewarding than making and taking. That professionalism means not perfection, but the skill to be successful. That real peace for you financially comes when you have no debts. That the debts you have should be to people or institutions that provided your values. That corporations are not an end in themselves, they are a means to an end. That when you are mistreated, never lower your standards to behave like the one who did it. That politics exists everywhere, not only in government. That being political is a strategy that works sometimes, but not always. That doing a favor for someone else is better than getting one from someone else. That the Bible and Shakespeare teach you more than economics or corporate finance. That democracy is a tough strategy and a difficult system, but seeing many others is still the best system invented. That capitalism provides the best opportunities, but it is not perfect and not always fair. That reading biographies teaches you lessons you cannot learn by yourself. That returning a phone call to someone you haven't heard from in years should be a joy, not a burden. That early to bed and early to rise helps to get the job done. That exercise, eating right, and dressing properly are strategies for good health and a good life. That bad things happen to good people, but that good people handle them much better. That passion for a sports team is a good relief from the normal tensions of life, but remember, it's only a game. That you should enjoy every obligation because with obligations done, responsibility is earned and success follows. That don't sweat the small stuff is a bad strategy. That your life is made up of small stuff, so live with it. That winning isn't everything, it's how you play the game that counts. That the apple of temptation is always there and you will be tested often. Be yourself and to thine own self be true should be written on every desk. That you should be proud to be an American. And lastly, number 54, that the best word in the English language is love. Now it's two years since I've done this speech, and I've learned number 55. Number 55 is, no matter what you have done well in your life, oftentimes you will not get credit for it. And thanks so much for that, Mike. And my goodness, my favorites to tell the truth because you never have to remember what you said. Brains are no substitute for hard work. My goodness, I've seen that play out in my life and friends' lives over and over again. That no matter how much you make, that is money, someone always makes more. And then no matter how much money you make, someone always makes less. And that the Bible and Shakespeare teach you more than economics or corporate finance. 
so glad to hear that from somebody who's plied the trades in business his whole life. And lastly, the best word in the English language is love. And to hear that from a, a businessman and a friend, well, that's why he is a friend. And that's Mike Levin, who spent his life leading in the hotel business right up to one of the biggest and most well-known brands in the country, the Las Vegas Sands. And now, in retirement, still running things, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of the Georgia Aquarium. Take your family, take friends to this remarkable place. You'll just smile for a day. This is Lee Habib, Mike Levin's 54 Things I Learned in 54 Years. In the end, his story here on Our American Stories.